Hello, YouTubers. Welcome back to Jack of All Trades. I'm here today with Kaylin and Sam and a very special guest, my friend Brendan. He's a tech technical analyst at a Canadian asset management firm. Uh, he's a good friend of mine from a couple of years, and we always discuss. We get we get very detailed discussions on on stocks and fundamentals. So I thought, why don't we put those discussions online and see if everybody can learn about it? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be on the show. Cool. So I think uh, the big question right now we want to go on, Sam, if you could share my screen. Uh, that's been talked a lot about in the media is the tech versus growth. And those is, there's a rotation into, into um, oh, sorry, uh, a value versus growth. And there's been a rotation into value recently, but both the, both me and you are on the same page in, the, in that we think growth is going to be the real winners here. Yeah, I definitely think so. I think for your viewers, it'd really be interesting to sort of define what both are. Uh, when it comes to uh, value investing, uh, you really would just want to take a company and strip it down. You want to look at its balance sheet. You want to look at its cash flows. You want to look at its debt structure, look for some hidden assets. And you want to pick companies that are trading below its intrinsic value. That's essentially what value investing is. But in this day, because of COVID, when people talk about value, they're really referring to companies that are in the oil and gas sector, financials, industrials, and really epicenter stocks, stocks that have been largely hit by the pandemic. On the other hand, when you're looking at growth, you're investing in companies that are in expansion mode, companies that are growing faster than the market. And sectors that are really emblematic of that are technology, biotech, disruptive sectors, and I really think that the NASDAQ's a great proxy for that. Uh, me personally, I think that any great portfolio should have a blend of value and growth stocks. Uh, but I'm all about growth. And I think a better way to put it is cyclicals versus non-cyclicals. And I do, like cyclical, uh, I do like the non-cyclical stocks. I like stocks that are innovating, stocks that are um, exhibiting really solid earnings growth and that are playing towards the themes of the future. What about you, you guys? So so for, for our viewers, do you, can you uh, roughly touch on the difference between cyclical and non-cyclical? So cyclical stocks are good when the economy is doing well, and non-cyclical stocks are stocks that are more all-weather, stocks that are going to do well regardless of the economic climate. So like a non-cyclical would be like a Costco? Yeah, a Costco, uh, maybe a utility. And I also think that we're seeing uh, a change in uh, growth stocks. I think growth stocks are becoming non-cyclical and more defensive in nature. I think Amazon's an excellent example of that. Uh, over the last couple of years, they've really become a household name and uh, they're growing their revenues like over 20% year over year. And uh, let's be honest, in an economic downturn, who's going to be canceling their $12 a month Amazon Prime membership? I know I'm not. That's a really good point. Um, Sam, can you pull up the NASDAQ for me? Uh, there is something, there's some stuff you want to show on the charts, right? Oh, yeah, so definitely. I mean, so this um, NASDAQ on the monthly. If you can go to a daily chart, that'd be great. Yeah. There we go. Yeah, I'm not sure if you have all the moving averages I want on there, but if you can kind of zoom out and show more so the long term trend. Going back a year ish, there's COVID. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, I don't think you have the right stock there because uh, the NASDAQ hasn't hit a uh, new all-time high yet. Oh, no, this is a uh, NASDAQ CBOE. All right, do you know what's the ticker? Yeah, it's uh, ITSIC, I-X-I-C. I see. I'll composite. Here we go. NASDAQ composite, yeah. There we go. So there was a lot of question that we were going to make a lower low 
earlier in March. I never thought that. I'm a long-term NASDAQ bull. Uh, and uh, the great thing about this chart is that we just received confirmation a couple of days ago that March 5th was a daily cycle low. Um, and uh, we received confirmation on that when we had the gap up uh, above uh, the 50-day on Friday. So there's so the I think 5th, that the yeah. yeah. And you got that really long lower wick. Uh, and the great thing is you can't see it on that chart. But if you look at the individual components, we had declining volume. Uh, all throughout that uh, downtrend, which was showing a uh, decrease in confidence uh, of the of the downturn. And uh, I think the NASDAQ is prime for a, um, a test of the all-time high. Uh, I'm not sure if it's going to break it on the first shot. You rarely do. Uh, we may end up forming some sort of equilibrium pattern, uh, like a lower high, higher low type thing. But eventually, I believe, in my opinion, this is going to be going to all-time highs and beyond. The NASDAQ is definitely a place you want to be. Yeah, I think I, I see it. Uh, Thursday was great because, like, Kaylee knows I love my uh, my my diagonal support and resistance lines. And we, oh, broke, and we I gapped, also do. <laughs> we gapped up above that. So it looks like we're, on, we're it on trend. Yeah. So are you looking at stocks more so within the NASDAQ then? Is that kind of your bread and butter then? Absolutely. I think the NASDAQ as an index compared to other indices like uh, the TSX uh, or the Dow in particular. I think uh, the NASDAQ is going to resume its uh, its outperformance. Okay. So since you're like you're obviously here in Canada with us, are you are you trading mostly like TSX stocks then? Or are you trading stuff on on the U.S. exchanges? So specifically, I'm not trading. I'm investing for the long haul, uh, which right. is obviously very different than what you guys do. Uh, but yeah, mostly stocks down the border. I'd say about seventy percent of uh, of the stocks that I hold are um, U.S. focused stocks because they just have a more complete, broader market, and that's where the growth is. Right. Do you want? Are you able to talk about your firm's performance? Because we talked about that before. It's pretty worth. It's pretty noteworthy. Oh, uh, maybe we'll save that for another session. I just really want to talk about my views and where I okay. think the market's going. Yeah. Okay. I got the uh, Nasdaq top top hand holding top ten holdings. If you wanted to talk about that, I know you you might have mentioned something about that. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, um, I said the Nasdaq's going to outperform. And I think the great thing about the Nasdaq is you look through uh, uh, the top companies on the Nasdaq. These are some of the best companies in the world. These are the companies that are innovating. And these are the companies that are changing the world. They have absolutely massive cash hoards when you look at companies like Google and uh, Apple, you know, with um, $100 billion cash hoards. They can pretty much do whatever they want with that. Um, and uh, these companies are companies of the future. They're not going away. So, look, one of the discussions we had before was how, like, the reason a lot of the, there is a lot of um, investing moving out of growth and into value is because there's, there's, there's these uh, inflation fears, right? And we, we had a lot of discussions about how, yeah. well, actually, we had the really long one the other day where I thought, you know what, uh, I don't think inflation... It's, it's going to happen, especially not in the way that it's being portrayed in the media. Yeah. And like, uh, well, I'll, I'll go over my idea because I want to talk to Kaylin about this too, because I want to get your thoughts. So for the longest time, I was I was in the whole camp with the media. I was saying, okay, well, M2 money supply, Sam, if you want to share my screen, like M2 money supply is like, this is COVID. And since then, 26 new, 26, well, probably 27% now more extra money supply in the US than there has ever been, right? And this is this should cause inflation, right? 
and I was with that with the media until it occurred the other to me the other day that I think this money supply has been absorbed already, right? We see asset prices have gone up, property, stocks, even NFTs, collectibles, housing, you name it, everything has gone up. And I feel like that was the quote unquote, the inflation that was people are expecting now has already happened. And if this is true, then that means growth stocks will resume to be the, the winners. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's probably a good point actually i mean i know like like i said i mean i only started doing investing and stuff about six months ago so i don't really have a as much of a detailed uh picture of the broad market as you guys do but like from what i'm seeing and you know i play small caps i play like junkie companies stuff like that because i like the volatility and you know that's usually the first place that a lot of this type of money tends to go is especially in those you know the stimulus checks everybody's getting i mean <laughs> I kid you not, like the days that I was trading, like the days people were getting their stimulus checks, there was a noticeable increase in all the stocks that I trade, right? And like guys that are trading the stuff that I do, if you don't know what you're doing, you lose your money pretty quick. So <laughs> it was just, it was kind of interesting to sure. see all that. And I remember, I remember like David and I were talking back and forth and you, we can kind of see like a little bit of a balance between, you know, what I'm seeing in my markets between what David's seeing and kind of the overall markets, whereas you know, I, I remember messaging and I'm saying like, man, you know, I'm not really seeing much. Like I didn't see any trades I like today or like, you know, this week was pretty slow. And then kind of the, the subsequent weeks is kind of when the overall market started to take a little bit of a dip. So it kind of seems like a lot more of the, the movement right now is really coming from those retail traders. Just from, from what I'm seeing is, is the guys that are, they're new to the market. They're excited. They're chasing everything up, but they're just dumping everything into it. So they're spending way more money than they should be based on their knowledge level. And it's all just going into the markets right now what i'm seeing from my end and that's a really good point too and i have something to add to that i mean when it comes to inflation there's really two factors um there's the money supply which uh, david pointed is going up but there's also the velocity of money too and caitlin brings up a great point that a lot of people are taking their stimulus checks and they're putting it right into the stock market in bitcoin and that's actually decreasing the velocity of money how money's going from one person to the next. It's not. People are hoarding their money instead of spending it, which uh, wouldn't be very inflationary. Yeah, you know what? You probably know this, because like, before this happened, like about a year ago, I was starting to read this uh, theory called the, uh, you probably heard of it, the dollar milkshake theory. Mm -hmm. When I read that thing, I thought it was pure bullshit. And then it's playing out to be pure bullshit. But the whole idea was like saying, they're like saying the US can print almost an infinite amount of money because the velocity will keep up. Meaning that, It'll, it, it's, it's basically a measure of how quickly the money changes hands, right? And they're saying as long as the money keeps changing hands really, really quickly, you can keep creating more and that there you won't see inflation. I read that and I thought that was bullshit, but then now we have living proof that it pretty much is bullshit, right? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I think, I think just because I think it was almost a perfect storm with COVID and the job losses and the stimulus checks is the only way that people saw as an out to make money was the stock market. I mean, what else are you going to do? You have no job, you know, you can't afford to buy a house. You can't like, what, what are you going to do to make money? Right. If nobody's hiring, well, I, I just got this stimulus check. I have money in, in the bank. I got to pay the bills. Everybody's talking about the markets. Let's start putting money in the markets. And then it's like, you're saying the money's not changing hands. It's just sitting in the markets and all the people that were trying to get rich quick, which is usually anybody who's uneducated in the markets. I mean, I know that's what got me interested in it is I wanted to get rich quick, right? And you learn pretty quick that doesn't happen. So I think all those people put all their money in there and now a lot of them are probably tied up. They're probably down in their positions. They can't take that money out. So it just, it just sat there. Yeah, I think we really did have a once in a, maybe once in a lifetime event because 
not only did all those factors happen, but you also have the platforms. Like if you didn't have Robinhood and those, you know, zero percent yeah. trading fees platforms available, like you, you know, even had you had the extra money, you still couldn't really invest, right? Yeah, like I mean, most of the accounts, like when I first started trading, it was like you needed like three thousand bucks minimum to get on like the lowest level broker, right? Now it's like I think you can open an account on Well Simple or Robinhood with like a hundred bucks or something, and it's free trading. And now they're right. paying you to trade too. Oh, they're they? paying for. Well, they're offering you margin loans. What I've been seeing is that people are now able to take uh, margin loans on, <sighs> on the stocks that they hold as collateral, <laughs> like a 70, 80% loan to value. And apparently oh, they no. pay you to do that, which is just, <laughs> it's crazy. Wow. They're also, isn't Robinhood or Well Simpler? Aren't they also giving you like a promo code? Like if you sign yeah. up, you get like a discount code. If somebody else signs up, you get 20 bucks or something. So I'm yeah, not on Robin Hood or Well Simple, so I wouldn't know. So no. okay. <laughs> neither am I. <laughs> so there so I've seen it. Uh I don't know how much it is, but Robin Hood gives you like a per promo code, you get 20, 50 bucks. Well Simple says just vaguely says they give you one free stock. Oh. Yeah. It's probably within a list of like shit stocks like under twenty five bucks, but yeah. Oh man, that's so funny. That's crazy. Yeah, uh, so can you pull uh, up my screen. Sorry, sorry, yeah, no, go ahead, Kate. No, I'm just—I just want to pull up my screen for prep, prep, but you can say whatever you need. Okay. No, I was just going to ask, um, like, what what kind of uh, what kind of research do you do to find your stocks there? Like, I was just kind of curious, you know, how you go about it. Like, do you have any? Like, are you looking at technicals? Are you looking more so fundamentals to narrow things down? Are you kind of looking at the news? Like, you know, how do how do you go about a process to narrow down what what you're really looking into? Oh, I look at absolutely everything. I do various stock screens. I do. Um, uh, look at well. Firstly, I think you have to look at the economic environment. You have to find out uh, how the market's looking, what sectors you like, what stocks within those sectors that you like, um, and then also what is your mandate? Do you have a growth mandate? Do you have a value mandate? More balanced? Are you looking for dividends and yields? Uh, so I really think it's um, it's specific to the person, and I think that every stock sort of has a um, a role in the portfolio. I think it sort of works holistically. Uh, so I would say a little bit of everything. I think fundamental analysis is great. And I think technical analysis, when you put the two together, that's even better. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, before we go to the jobs, I definitely do want to touch on, uh, inflation rates and yields a little yeah. bit more, David. Sure. Let's go for it. Yeah. So it's just funny when everyone keeps on saying the money printers going burr. <laughs> I always see that everywhere. The memes. I just find it's ridiculous. And they think because the Fed's printing a little bit of money that it means that we're going to have some massive, um, massive inflation. It's going to be, you know, uh, like they had in Zimbabwe or in Germany in the 1920s and 30s, uh, which is crazy because we are still trading below the Fed's 2% inflation targets. We can't even reach that. See, I, I have some debate about that because they're looking at CPI and we know that basket isn't really reflective of real inflation. But is uh, the value of stocks or real estate or NFTs, is that a good uh, comparable also? Well, if you put housing in there, definitely. Housing is a cost of living. And if it's growing like 30% a year, and it, sh it should be counted towards inflation. So the they cost don't have, they don't have, of housing is, but rent is going down in Toronto, at least. I can't say about other cities, but here rents have been going down a lot because of COVID. Yeah, so. that's fair. But that's what I mean. Like those things... Because we at least agree those are factors of inflation, so they should be in the CPI. Mm -hmm. Like, worst case, you get the same picture, but I think it should be included. Yeah. 
Uh, like the other point that I also wanted to bring up is that uh, we probably will have a uptake inflation over the coming months because the comparables from Q2 of last year, because of these immense worldwide lockdowns, the comparables are going to look horrible. And I think people do recognize that. But I think uh, we got to stay the course here. We've got to listen to Jerome Powell and the Fed, who says that uh, inflation is going to be transitory. I'm on the same page. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I mean, copper went up a little bit and we have the semiconductor shortage, but those are very temporary. Yeah, exactly. I, I believe copper has been pulling back the last couple of weeks as well. Oh, has it? Okay, so that makes it better then. Yeah, the inflation shouldn't... Like I said, the money that, that was printed has been absorbed and we could clearly see that, right? And so like if it's been absorbed then CPI shouldn't move because there's no extra money going towards there. Remember we were talking about the other day, the, the stats like uh, household savings are at record highs, household debts are at record lows. Yeah. So that money is actually, you know, it's been absorbed. Right. So let's go to the jobs report. U.S. economy, so that was a surprise too. U.S. economy added 916,000 jobs in March. I think the they were tracking it to be somewhere in the 700,000. So they, it was quite a significant beat. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I think when you really break down what was in the jobs report, I think that's the most interesting thing. So I just, I got it here. Uh, leisure and hospitality added 280,000 new jobs, bars and restaurants, 176,000, arts and entertainment, 64,000 new jobs. Uh, construction saw a gain of 110,000 new jobs, strongest month in over a year. Uh, these are great numbers. Um, obviously, we're still way below the pandemic uh, peak in February of 2020. Uh, but it's great to see these job gains because these sectors are the ones that need the most help. Yeah, especially hospitality and leisure. Are these new jobs like that have been created or are these like yes. existing jobs, people going back now? That seems seems kind of odd that there'd be that many new jobs in like bars and restaurants and stuff when like I know so many of them are going out of business. I don't know. I think this, well, I think the States has a different picture than us. I remember I keep, I keep saying in my memes, I'm like, I, I think the States is doing quite well. Canada is the one that's um, doing everything yeah, wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I think we can, all three of us can probably agree on that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what is your thoughts on Canada's recovery, Brandon? Uh, to be honest, I'm more U.S. focused. Uh, I know that they've done a much better job with, uh, yeah, uh, with uh, the vaccine rollout, and they've done a much better job with the reopening. Uh, and here we're entering another lockdown. Yeah, I know. It definitely doesn't look as good, at least here in Ontario. Look, mm -hmm. for better or worse, right or wrong, there's just something I keep wanting to point out. And it's like, you have california which is basically acting like canada in terms of their lockdown heavy restrictions they're very heavy-handed right and they're like the first largest state terms economically in the u.s then you have the second or the third which is texas and they basically didn't have a lockdown they're all no masking i'm gonna say they're probably not the healthiest either either out there but yet they're 23rd on the list of deaths in the united states so they're about halfway right so in my mind i think the restrictions are clearly a little heavy-handed yeah yeah what are your what are your thoughts on all the the tax implications of that anyways i'm kind of curious to hear what you have to say like i know everybody's thinking next year you know things are going to be way more expensive they're going to tax us like I don't, I don't know if you have any insight on that not really i'm not a tax guy i'm a technical guy at the end of the day um, yeah. so I'll, i guess i'll pass it over to david well, i know i'm um... curious to hear what you guys think might happen 
I know corporate tax is going up. That's for yeah. sure. Um, capital gains taxes. Did you? So I, I actually read this the other day. It was pretty interesting. Apparently, thirty-four percent of the Canada's GDP is capital tax gains. Really? Yeah, thirty-four percent of our GDP. By what? Twenty-five percent. Do you say he's trying to increase it? Yeah, he's trying to increase capital yeah. capital tax by what? Twenty-five percent, I think it was. Yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know if they were even um, they had a number on it, but that would make sense, right? If the GDP is thirty four percent, you increase that by a quarter, then that's 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 a huge revenue, actually. But that's bad for corporations, right? You'd imagine that Canadian stocks would suffer a little bit from that. Yeah, well, that's where they get most of their money, right? Is like like the government gets their money from the rich guys, right? They don't get it from like middle class, lower middle class. Like most of the tax money is coming from the most wealthy from the corporations. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, I hope not. But I know they're trying to legalize gambling. <laughs> try to generate more, some more. Uh, they're trying to legalize online gambling here in Canada. To try to get some more tax revenue. They just, they they know they spent above, <laughs> beyond what they what they should have, and now they're trying to figure out ways to get the money back. Yeah, the whole thing's just a mess. That's why we just focus on the U.S. stocks. <laughs> Yeah, for better or worse, man, I, I don't understand Canada. To me, like, we should be a superpower, right? We, we're resource rich, mm -hmm. right? We have low population, we're resource rich, and we're physically positioned in a really great spot because our, our number one exporter would be to the States. But yet we're, we're, we're not an economic power at all. Like we're barely staying above float. I think it's just because we're so small. I well, I, I think at the end of the day, when you look at the components of our stock market, it's really cyclical, right? It's energy, it's materials, and it's financials. And then when you look at the U.S., the largest sector is tech, and that's non-cyclical. We've been in a period of slow growth for the past maybe 20 years, and I don't see that ending anytime soon. So uh, I can see why the U.S. economy just continues to outperform and the U.S. stock market in general. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. I guess I guess a lot of people, too. I mean... Anybody that's looking to, to grow themselves or to get those resources, if they are Canadian, they're probably going to go to the States anyways. Because it's a lot tougher to start that kind of thing here. Yeah, but we could, well, I mean, we could, we, we have oil, we can export lumber. We, we, we even should be, so I, this is a good example. So Ontario actually generates a net positive on, in electricity. So we generate a lot more than we use, right? And we usually sell, and we're supposed to sell it, um, sell the extras to neighboring areas like New York and whatnot. But, but for some reason, we end up selling that energy at a loss. So we sell it for less than the cost of what it takes us to generate. That's a policy issue. Right. So that's something to do with the actual like, tr like transmission of the energy? Like is it just like line loss or something stupid like that? Or is that just like the politics? It's politics because our energy generation is half crown owned, right? So it's like you have people, it's basically like if you ran a company and the people who give you money are the taxpayers, so you're not really beholden to them. Then you can kind of run it inefficiently, and nobody's going to get, come at you, right? Mm -hmm. if, you, if, you, if, you, if you're managing private money, if you have private investors, then you, you, know, you have a board that's going to be like, yo, make this company profitable or you're out. But look at Canada. We, we have CEOs that never get fired. They get fat paychecks, and they don't need to perform because no one's... Who's going to go after them? Who's going to go after the power generation, Ontario power generation, and say, "Hey, you're not, you're not you know, creating a um, a profitable business." Hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Any any government entity is like kind of like that. I was even the other day, you know, we I was talking about just getting even something as simple as you know design drawings. If you want to build a house for the city, like you know, you want to build your home, you want to do renovation. 
it's the only thing I can think of where I'm, I'm, I'm paying someone to do this service for me. I'm paying someone to design a house or design a whatever for me, but there's no, there's zero element of customer service, right? So I'm paying them to do a service for me, but at any point they could just say, no, you know, I don't like you go away. And there's zero repercussions because they're still getting paid. Right. I, I couldn't think of, I was talking to my friend about that the other day and I couldn't think of anything else that was like that. It's like, we as the customer have to be the customer service as well. It's a really weird situation. I'll give you two more examples. Okay. Postal service, healthcare, also crown corporations. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. All government stuff, right? It's just, it's just kind of a weird thing. You know, we like we're paying for something directly and we have, we have to be the ones that are jumping through the hoops and doing all the stuff to make it work for us. Because they have zero respect for where this money's coming from. But it's coming from us still. And there's yeah, and there's zero oversight. I'll give you a perfect example. So a a good high school friend of mine, uh, he manages IT for a major hospital here. He's their chief, whatever, IT guy. And every year he has a bunch of computers. He either sells them or he upgrades his own computers and it's from the hospital. And they they just basically replace them. And I'm asking him, like, computers don't age that quickly. Why don't you guys keep it like three for three to five years? And he's like, if we don't spend our yearly budget, they're going to cut our budget. So we have to spend this money on computers we don't need. Like, what the fuck? I get that all the time because I work in construction, right? So, like, we do stuff for schools and it's the exact same thing. Like, the school will come to me and say, you know, we're, we're designing this park or whatever. And, you know, I give them a price. I'll say, you know, say it's a million bucks or whatever to build this project. And then they'll come back to me and say, okay, we, we but like, you know, we got to make it worth at least 1.1 because if we don't spend the we don't spend that money, then we won't get it back next year. We get a less budget. So like any, any contractor that's working for a school or like a government building is, is it's a very, very good spot to be in. See this, this the whole system doesn't make sense. Like it doesn't make <laughs> sense. I don't like it. Cause I know that that money is basically coming out of my pocket in one way or another, yeah. but it's an interesting yeah. system. Hey, this, this is why I'm going to bring it back to the idea of growth stocks, because these are, in my mind, a, a strong growth stock is a company that's well run. They're like, they're the little scrappers, you know, they're the contenders. So they have to be, they have to make every dollar worth $2. And I think that's why they're going to continue uh, outperforming, right? And Brendan, did you have anything to say about the, uh, the growth stocks? Oh, I have a ton to say about growth stocks. Always. <laughs> there we go. I know you do. I, I, I've, I've heard it. So let's, let's hear it. Yeah, well, I think the most uh, interesting thing that I see regarding the value versus growth debate is that at the beginning of every single year, like January 1st, I always hear about people saying that growth has uh, outperformed for the past like seven to eight years and now it's value's turn. Did you ever hear that? Yeah, yep. all the time. <laughs> it's just simply gambler's fallacy. So I see people always uh, sell their winners and they buy the market losers, you know, the stocks that are perpetually going down. And uh, just people think that there's going to be some sort of reversion to the mean. And I'm seeing the same thing happening today. Is that people yeah. think because values underperform for so long that it's just somehow going to be values here. Yeah, so it's a really like, flawed thinking. No, sorry. Go ahead, Ken. Sorry, I was just going to say, Brandon. So in your, in your opinion, then, like, why do you think that is? Do you think it's because people are expecting value stocks to be a quicker mover? Like, are they expecting a quicker gain or are they just... They've been in their growth stock so long, they're just kind of, you know, getting bored and they're just thinking something else new just has to change. I think that's it. I think that people either are participating and they want to take profits or getting a little bit antsy or people have just missed the move completely. Um, 
And the fact of the matter is that uh, we are in probably the greatest secular bull market in American history. One of them, at least. Uh, I think that that's all because of technology. Yeah. I think when you look at the technological innovations that we're having right now, they're some of the greatest technological innovations ever. Yeah, uh, I when think you that's look a really at, good example. Yeah, because like yeah, uh, I, I just AI, want to add, like, sorry, I just uh, yeah. Before you touch into that, that that's exactly what I was going into. But I wanted to just say, like, because what people don't realize is, like, they see a new piece of technology come out, and they're like, okay, it's a new company, it's a new piece of hardware, but they're not looking at it in terms of how it's analogous to something in the past, right? So when you have the internet show up, you have so many people saying this thing is just a communications thing, you know, you can send a couple of emails, what's it going to do? But if you look at it analogously to what's been created in history, what the internet yeah. is today is what the railway was like 300 years ago. Without the railway, you, had, you, didn't, you could not do intercontinental trade. But suddenly, once you had a railway, east coast to the west coast, everything in between, you could suddenly have trade and everybody prospered. That's what the internet is. And like what you're going to say is this, inner, this the AI is going to be another type of railway that opens doors to whole new industries. Exactly. Right so you look at the trends like AI, like blockchain, digital entertainment, biotechnology, battery tech, electric vehicles. These are innovations that are changing the world. And interestingly, you can look at the technologies of today and you can compare them to the same technologies that ushered in the bull markets of the 1920s, the 1950s, and the 1990s. The railway is an excellent example of that. Other examples, um, the 1920s, uh, the Roaring Twenties, you had the invention of uh, the refrigerator, the radio, the television, mass adoption of the automobile too. In the 50s, you had plastics, the invention of the microchip, uh, the baby boom. And in the 90s, you had, as you said, the advent of the internet and the adoption of the personal computer. So I think when you break down a secular bull market to its most basic point, it's a set of advancements that are promoting humanity to the next level, which is prognosticated by price gains in the stock market. And that is exactly why I'm sticking with growth and non-cyclicals versus value, because I want to stick with the companies that are innovating and that are changing the world. Yeah, I think so. It's possible, I think, people's perspectives are like, they're looking at these technologies and they're thinking, this is something new that's growing in an industry, not realizing that these will be industries onto themselves. Yeah. Right. I think a, a, a lot of that, I mean, like, even, even from my perspective, you know, like, like Starlink was one that we were talking about, I think, before, mm. the, before, the, before we started recording here, you know, like, I, like I, I already ordered Starlink for my new house. So I'm just waiting for it to show up, but you know, because it's in the country. But I was just—it's just one of those things, you know. If, if you, you know, even if you don't know anything about stocks, I think the average intelligent person can sit there and say, okay, you know, yeah, something like that. Like, what what is there that compares to that? There's nothing. You know, we're talking about unlimited high-speed internet in rural areas that don't have fiber optic. That is such a gigantic market. It's insane. And this is going to be something that's better than Bell, better than Rogers, like better than everything else. It's going to completely capture that whole market. I mean, it, like that's that's all you have to tell me to tell me it's pretty much a no brainer, whether it, you know, triples in the first year or whether it takes 10 years to make any kind of decent gains. I mean, who knows? But that's that's the kind of thing that I like I would feel safe putting my money in. And I don't know nearly as much about fundamentals as you guys. Yeah, I would agree. This is like probably a no-brainer investor investment win. And it's like the the thing that 
Warren Buffett always says, like, you want to look for companies. Well, one of the things that he says, you want to, components, you have to look for companies that have a defensive moat. Something in their technology exactly. or their business model, right, that keeps everybody else from from entering the marketplace. Well, Elon owns the freaking <laughs> spaceship company. So <laughs> that that's a hell of a defensive moat, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So like yeah, everybody really- else that wants to launch those satellites have to pay astronomically to piggyback a Russian Soyuz or whatever it is, right? And the other thing that he, that's so smart about his business model is you look at the incumbents, right? AT&Ts and the Bells. They're fighting each other for 5G. They're fighting each other for cables and towers, right, in the most urban areas. And Elon's like, well, we have a whole other third of the world over here that's that's an open marketplace, basically, and they're being underserved. Why don't I go attack them, right? Yeah. It's, it's going to be a monster monopoly. There's so many. I don't like, you know, I think when a lot of people that live in the city, I mean, I think what they think about when they think of rural Internet, they're thinking, you know, some little farm town in the middle of nowhere, like, oh, who's going to buy that, right? But the reality is it's not like that at all. I mean, especially with the growth in population we're seeing, you know, cities are expanding outside of the main core so fast that that, that infrastructure can't keep up. I mean, all that stuff is always so far behind. And, you know, I have, I have like, I live, you know, I, I live just outside the city and I have friends that live 15 minutes away from me that are also still technically in the city and they don't have hardwired internet. Like they have to use a satellite and I can, I can literally bike to their house from my condo. You know, it's like, it's crazy. So it's like, it's everywhere. It's such a huge market. And I don't think people realize that. You know, the other thing I wanted to say was like, you have places in like South America or or places like South America that are like topographically, it's difficult to put up wires or it's it's difficult to put up towers, right? And then you have places like Africa where it's like, the the income there is so low that it doesn't make sense for an incumbent to go there and start putting down wires or infrastructure, right? And so these guys are kind of trapped. But then Elon literally just with launching a satellite just solved that problem. It's, right. it's such an insane play. It's amazing. It's also population density too, right? I mean, you could have you could have a pretty big thriving city that's you know maybe it's just a halfway point between two places. I don't know, like off the top of my head, maybe it's something like you know between like Vegas and Arizona or something like that right where like you could potentially have a full city that develops you know as a as a halfway point between somewhere which you know on on our side here in canada we're seeing that in smaller amounts just because like i said people are moving out of the city that those little rural farm towns are starting to grow quickly and that's the kind of thing where you know people like me like people that are that are new to the markets that are buying their first and second homes they're moving to those places because it's a lot more affordable and a lot of people don't really want to be in the city anyway so all that's really kind of coming together to create even more of a market for that. And the downtown core, how, how many people can we really pack in there? Like how many poor people can actually fit downtown realistically, right? With the rate of the rate of immigration and everything. I mean, people are going to have to go outside the city. It's just, it's just what's going to have to happen. And until that infrastructure catches up, what services are they going to be using? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think, I think that might be an area I'm going to start watching soon for, because like if you it's it's a chicken and the egg issue, right? It's like people there could be a lot of people that don't want to live outside of the city or go to super rural areas because there's no infrastructure, right? Where mm-hmm. like internet and things like that. But now if you do have internet, then it's like, well, then suddenly there people have a good reason to start moving far outside the city, and they, you could think, well, what kind of businesses will set up that way, right? And not just like in 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 a Western country, but I'm like especially in a place like like Africa. If if you if you give them broadband access to internet. 
what kind of businesses will start sprawling from there? Imagine they, because they, you imagine that they start having their online retail um, businesses and whatnot, right? And massive shipping, and it's just going to be. And they already do. They have uh, Jumia, which is uh, um, Nigeria's Amazon, which I believe is a multi-billion-dollar valuation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Really? So they're starting already. Yeah. Exactly. That's uh, a really good. Starlink. Can you tell me a little bit about that? They're providing uh, broadband for essentially the world via satellites. Yeah, so yeah, they started that one. <laughs> yeah, so they started launching in 2017 or 2018. Uh, there, there's about a thousand satellites up so far, ten thousand customers. They're in beta. But Kaylin, did, when when you set up, did they call it a beta, or how, what did how did it look like? Like, uh, what do you mean by a beta? So, because because the article I was reading was that it was saying that um, the people who are signing up or who they're opening up to right now are saying it's not like. It's not like the main service. It's just like you, it's kind of like you're beta testing it, so that you might not get the full speed oh, and yeah. things like that. Yeah, yeah, it is. So, like, like I, I first signed up for it because, like I said, I'm, I'm moving out to the country shortly, and um, we, like, I, you know, I talked to Bell and Rogers and all that stuff. And as usual, I'm on the phone for three hours and I get nowhere. But um, the the download and the upload speeds for Bell and stuff out in the country and Rogers and things like that, it's typically like you know you're getting like three to maybe five download speed something like that and like one megabyte upload speed in that neighborhood and like if you're on fiber optic i think it's over 200 download and 20 or 30 upload something like it's it's way 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 more um but i was reading a couple articles and a couple people um just outside the city here now have already gotten their their starlink internet and they said that where they were at they had two megabytes per, se per second uh download from bell and when they went to starlink it went up to 120 megabytes per download per second download. So it's, you're basically fiber optic internet. And it was, it was the same price per month and it's unlimited, which Bell wasn't. So yeah. like, the comparison, it's not even a comparison at that point, but, but when I bought it, it basically just said um, like, there's no order date. So I bought it, I bought the, the satellite and everything. And they just tell you, you know, we're, we're shipping them out in, in phases essentially. So what's going to happen is, is they'll ship out, you know, whenever they do the next batch of a thousand or however many it is. Whoever's first on that list is going to get it. And then they said in the disclaimer, it said, um, you know, basically first come, first serve, because we're not going to sell more um, contracts than we have the ability to provide that service for. So until they get more, basically in layman's terms, until they get more satellites up, they're not going to be sending out more, um, more satellites to customers because I guess they want to keep that speed up. Okay, that makes sense. So, so right now they have 10,000 customers, 1,000 satellites. Uh, but they launch about a hundred at a time, and I, I know they launched one back in February. They're, so they plan to launch another thirteen hundred by the end of this year. So they have like two thousand satellites. the The target is ten thousand. I think that they said that's the minimum threshold to to give this kind of internet to the whole world. And Starlink is aiming for thirty thousand. Um, and the, like you were saying, their their current speed is about one hundred fifty megabytes per second, but they're aiming for three hundred. <clears throat> excuse me, aiming for three hundred when it's fully rolled out. <laughs> that's, that's ridiculous from a satellite <laughs> yeah 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 it's, it said it's uh it should be like the fall of this year roughly is when they're estimating for for my and here's the greatest part so elon so the, so spacex is doing the launch and they own starlink but they're going to spin it off as its separate ipo at some point but what i found interesting was that since they've launched uh, starlink uh, i think spacex has gotten at least one more seeding seed round of funding and it's valuing them somewhere around 70 billion dollars and they received another 885 million from 
uh, some government organization, some kind of communications organization to, to launch these satellites. So they're very well funded right now. And $70 billion isn't even that much higher than what it was just a couple of years ago. I think uh, 2019, it was like 40 bill. Yeah. And I, th- and I think the reason is a lot of the investors, I mean, to invest in this type of company, you really have to have a long time horizon, right? Their, their plan is to launch, get some people to Mars. So like, you're not going to get, you're not going to be able to exit in 10 years with like a- And this is a perfect miles. example of growth versus value and why mm. you want to be in companies that are in expansion mode. Yeah. Because I think- It's all about having that long-term time horizon and investing in companies that have a really solid track record and companies that you really believe in. And if you can buy them right now, you buy them right now. If you can buy them on a 10, 20% pullback, you do that too, that's even better. But long-term- when you look at your portfolio five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, you really see that long-term increase. I, I, I have a funny question for you. Do you consider Apple today a growth stock? I consider it value growth, yeah. So here's the funny thing. It's not it's been quite a- um, like some of the other names that you talk about, whether it's uh, Tesla or your other EV names, those I would call more Gromo, growth momentum. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a good one. I'm going to use that. I like that, Gromo. <laughs> no, but it's perfect, though. But uh, no, I was going to say, because Apple IPO'd, I think, the, the early 80s. So they've been around for 40, 50 years, and they've been a growth stock for 40, 50 years. So it's like this whole idea that you have to switch back and forth. They're going to start. No, just pick a winner. It's going to keep yeah. going. Like you know. Well, that's exactly what it is. I don't think people are used to growth companies growing so strongly for so long. Um it's funny, every single quarter, Apple continues to surprise me when they beat on both the top and the bottom line. And I'm one of the biggest bulls out there. So they just come out every single quarter and they're just doing a great job. I think that's really interesting with those kind of companies is just that, I think that's really a huge thing with the tech industry is just that once you have a solid you know, foundation in a really good tech company like Apple, the whole world is tech. I mean, that stuff just keeps evolving. There's always more there's always something new to create. And once you're in that, once you have that revenue and that basis, you can just keep innovating and keep growing and keep creating new products for people. Yeah, exactly. They're, and they're changing yeah. the way that we communicate. They're changing the way that we entertain ourselves, the way that we live. Um, you know, there was talks about an Apple car. That would be fantastic as well. Yeah. Um, and there's just because they have so much cash, they're a cash cow. They can get into whatever sector they wanted to. They got into the headphones. They got into uh, Apple Music. They have uh, uh, turned themselves from just a product-oriented company into now a service-oriented company too. Yeah, yeah. I think I don't. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just time. But people forget that Apple has innovated uh, like almost so many industries. Right? Like with the iPod, they changed the game. And with the iPod came iTunes. And with iTunes came the one dollar song. Like that literally just destroyed the CD business, right? The $1 song changed everything that you could buy MP3s. Because before that, Napster was killing the music industry, right? And then just a few years later, they make the app store. Where was the the app industry just, you know, 15 years ago? It's nowhere. Didn't exist. Didn't exist, right? These guys are laying the foundations for the future. So you find these companies that are laying the foundations for the future. Just let it ride. Exactly. And I think that's what people have the hardest time doing is letting their winners run and cutting their losers short. I had a question for both of you, actually. What do you think about 
because I don't know if you guys use PayPal or well, we don't have Square, but assuming, but you, I'm assuming you guys know what it do. They do, but I guess so. They're so they're considered like challenger banks. So what do you think they're? Are you think they're going to replace traditional finance financial industries, or are they going to kind of like overtake them? Uh, sorry, replace them or work alongside them? I think they're going to work alongside them for sure. I mean, there's so many different. Uh, types of payment now there's square there's apple pay there's uh you know paypal and venmo um and now with bitcoin too um do you have any thoughts on that caitlin yeah i agree with that as well i think uh i can't see the whole world getting centralized into one specific thing at least not anytime soon just because i mean you know just from my perspective anyways there's always that risk that you know something could get hacked or whatever like you know anybody who invests in stocks knows that you want to diversify to a certain amount so if you know none of us would put all of our money into a singular bank account and just leave it there like you always want to kind of have things all over the place just to protect yourself and take advantage as many of those things as possible so i think that's probably the reason that we'll always have paypal we'll have banks i don't think we'll have brick and mortar banks so much for too much longer it might all be an online service but uh i think definitely there's definitely going to be quite a few uh payment services for a long time still in my yeah, I read, I read a survey. A Sorry. Long, no, there's ahead, still man. such a long runway for growth there as well. Um, a large uh, percentage of U.S. transactions are still done using cash. Yeah. I was just going to so, say, I read a survey yeah. recently that said, like, I think it was single-digit uh, millennials and younger actually walk into a bank branch to, to get anything done compared to the older generations. Like more of them walk in? No less, like less than less than oh. single digits. It's like less than ten percent. Oh. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Like, <laughs> traditional banks need to change. I, I, I have to agree with that because I, <laughs> I have like two hundred bucks US in my wallet that I've had there for like nine months, and I tried, I tried to put it in the ATM. And said it doesn't take foreign currency, and it's yeah, it's been almost a year, and I still haven't <laughs> to put it in. So oh, I definitely man. agree with that. And it's really all because of the pandemic too. I used to love to use cash. Yeah, that's oh, a good point. Right. Yeah, every time I go to the bank, there's a lineup outside and I don't, even, I don't want to stand out in the cold. You know, I got to say, just for shits and giggles, there was, for the longest time, I was using cash, even though I like digital better. But the only reason I was using cash is because mentally it was easier for me to keep track of my spending. Because when it's digital, man, it just, it just flows. <laughs> A hundred percent. I hear a lot of people talk about that. I'm like that too. Like whenever I'm, I like to use cash. I just hate having change. That's the problem. Like whenever yeah. I have change, I always like end up putting it in my truck or something and it ends up all over the floor and then it ends up disappearing. But I do like using cash. Like I, I prefer using cash. If I just had like a really good place to store all my change, I'd probably use it more often. Oh, that's crazy. We're going to go to a digital world like so soon. Sam, I wanted to pull up an article. Um, where is it? That I thought was interesting. So this guy's Adam Beck. He's the CEO of a company called Blockstream. We we're talking about uh, Bitcoin and blockchains just recently. So Blockstream is a for-profit company that's building products for the Bitcoin blockchain. And I thought this was something interesting. He's so they started a mining business, and they created a security token, and they're selling it for about a quarter million each token. And what it's effectively doing is for the next, I think it was three to five years, one of those dates, they're selling. They're basically selling the computer power to the miners. So they're basically saying, you buy this token, you're buying a share of whatever uh, Bitcoin that we mine over the next three to five years. And it's starting at, at a quarter million dollars each token. 
So it's basically selling securities. So is it kind of like a forward contract, essentially? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because okay. I think I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to um, they're trying to fund the initial capex with this token. So you're basically and this is just for Bitcoin. Uh, just they're mining Bitcoin, yeah. So you're almost earning. You're just earning like a percentage of however many bitcoins they mine over the next three to five years. Right, and you're getting a one-time payment. It's basically you buy the tokens, and it's going to be locked up. So, so each token is, represents two thousand terahashes per second. Uh, it's actually quite a lot. Um, what else? Uh, yeah, two hundred forty thousand dollars each. Uh, offering is uh, April seventh. Um, so clearly, this is also for high net worth individuals. I don't know how many people could just pull up quarter million dollars. Yeah, especially something brand new like this. It's. <laughs> I'm interested you know, to see what the regulatory. Um, environment's going to look like this with bitcoin because there's really not enough uh red tape out there in my opinion have you heard of stoker because this is so they're saying they're selling this on stoker european investment staker. marketplace staker so you is know it? it oh wait so is staker owned by anchor me and you were having to talk about anchor about a year ago yeah i don't know um i actually don't know so very, anchor, i know very little about this um it's like a proof of stake uh platform uh, that allows you to, I think, uh, like join a pool. I think it's like Rocky pool to okay. mine. Again, uh, crypto is really not my wheelhouse, but I do know Anchor. So I thought this was, um, this just came out. So I thought this was very interesting. But um, to get into the, the fun side of this conversation, um, I, there's a reason I bring up Adam Beck. Uh, it's just, it just happened to have that this, um, this thing came out yesterday. But, um, so I was watching a few documentaries this past week, and um, I actually think I know who uh, Satoshi is. And there's like, there's all there's a lot of articles that saying how much Bitcoin Satoshi has, and this guy was tracking. He's saying these black lines here are the ones that Satoshi mined, and he's never spent them. It, it, it adds up to about a, a million a million Bitcoin, right? And so there's a lot of debate on who Satoshi is because they're like, well, most people would have spent it at some point between now and then at least some portion of it. So there's, you know, there's, there's speculation that he's dead. Um, there's a guy that named by the name of Hal Finney, which was the first guy Satoshi ever uh, sent to Bitcoin to. And he was also the first developer for uh, Bitcoin. He, he, he died some years ago. He developed ALS. So there's some su suspicion that he's, uh, he's um, Satoshi. But the funny thing is like, if that were true, then there's, there's literally Four messages of him just talking to himself, which is just bizarre, right? So that that shouldn't happen. Um, but I actually think this guy Adam Beck is Satoshi, and I'm not the only one. Apparently, this is like an open secret in, in the crypto community uh, at a very high level. And the reason is because so Satoshi has a few markers for who he is. One of the main ones is that he codes in C++ very well that he's supposedly British because, uh, so I have this book full of Satoshi's writings and he writes, he spells things like us, Canadians with honor, the O-U-R okay. and stuff like that. So he spells it with like a Canadian. So they, they suspect that he's British and every writing he has, he does a double space. So at the end of every sentence, instead of a single space, it's a double space. And apparently it's a carryover from uh, the, I think it was uh some university programs where you, when, when you're writing formal papers, you have to do a double space and started with a typewriter. So that gives you an indication of his age and his education. And there's a That's couple of like, 
Yeah. Sorry. That's how I was yeah, always yeah. taught. It was a double space after, after a sentence. Yeah, exactly. So there's like, so there's a couple of things like that, uh, that point to that, that, that the market that he hits. And there's a few other things too. So Satoshi is known to be an inventor because he supposedly invented Bitcoin, right? Well, Adam actually has a bunch of patents, like tons and tons of patents, but he stopped applying for patents between 2007 and 2011, which was around the time that Bitcoin was getting invented. Bitcoin, the white paper showed up in 2008, late 2008, and the first Bitcoin was mined in 2009. And so that period where he wasn't filing any patents, it just seems like he fell off the earth. So it's like, what was he doing that during that time, right? So there's a lot of things like that. And he also invented this thing called Hashcash, which is very similar to Bitcoin. It's like a precursor to Bitcoin. So from a resume perspective, he, he ticks all the boxes. Oh, and he was also one of the, one of the original um, cypherpunks. So Bitcoin actually came from the cypher, cypherpunk movement that came in the 70s. So a bunch of guys, they, computer guys, they saw that the government was starting to be potentially too controlling. And then they saw the internet coming and they're like, we need to find a way to create cryptography, to use cryptography to kind of give ourselves some freedom or some anonymity because if Big Brother's always looking at what we're doing, then it's not good, right? So one of the things, Sam, if you could share my screen. So one of the things that he did, he's actually very well known in the, in the uh, community, was that there was a piece of cryptography that the NSA deemed a weapon. And so they tried to force, uh, force them to not use it anymore. So what he did was he actually printed the code on a T-shirt, sold the t or gave away the T-shirt, and had people send it all around the world because technically it's 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 protected by copyright at that point. <laughs> so he did it. He did like a backhanded way to kind of to kind of make this code unenforceable, unenforceably controlled by the NSA by printing it on a T-shirt and just had people like wear it all over the place and it got transferred all over the world. So Adam Beck is actually very famous in the cryptography world. So. He checks literally every box you would need. Oh, and he also has a, has a degree in distributed systems, which is what Bitcoin is. It's a distributed system. And so he ticks every single box that Bitcoin uh, needs. But there's one problem. And that one problem is a philosophical one because Bitcoin was made to be a decentralized platform. Um, it's altruistic. It's open source, blah, 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 right? Adam Beck is the CEO of Blockstream. And Blockstream is a for-profit organization building software on top of Bitcoin. And so the only argument people have against him as being the CEO or being the creator of Bitcoin is the fact that, well, why is he now making a for-profit company on top of Bitcoin? That's what I don't understand. What would his incentive be to do that? See, I don't know. I don't know if it's... Uh, he already it's, has a billion Bitcoin, right? Or a million Bitcoin. <clears throat> He has a million Bitcoin, but for various reasons, I don't think so. There's there's suspicion that you know the guy's dead. The guy uh, lost his keys, which shouldn't be possible for a, a, a cryptographer. Um, but I think the reason he's not moving is because you can't. Um, because if you if you've been trading Bitcoin for any period of time, you start to see that anytime there's a whale call, the Bitcoin price drops significantly. And God forbid a single coin moved from that wallet, I think Bitcoin pr price would crash because suddenly. People think, oh, we thought there was a million float here locked up, lost, and suddenly there's an extra million Bitcoin in the ecosystem. So I don't think he can actually move it. But but if you look at his original writings, though, he he's clearly not a guy motivated by money. He just wanted to build something that works. But at the same time, like I don't think for this philosophically, it's like it's like a bad thing to create a second layer on top of Bitcoin, right? Because a lot of the Bitcoin hardcore I don't guys. Think so. like, 
Right. And if he was doing that to promote Bitcoin and he was doing that to take Bitcoin to the next level, that would be really understandable. Like, I know what I know and I know what I don't know. I know that I don't know who Satoshi Nakamoto is, uh, but um, I think he may be onto something. Well, I just think it's funny because like Blockstream, ironically, is actually one of the most hated companies in the in the crypto ecosystem because they're trying to be for profit. And I'm like. That's basically the only reason they hate him and they hate Blockstream and they refuse to say that he's he's Satoshi. But I'm like, he's not, so like he's. It's not like he's building a competitor. It's not like he went out, built Bitcoin, and then built Ethereum to compete against. Like he left Bitcoin as is. It's perfect. It's running. And it's like, why don't we build these secondary options on top of on top of Bitcoin now, right? So one of the things he's building is Lightning Network, and the other thing is Liquid. So Liquid is like a decentralized uh, trading platform. And Lightning is basically the Visa on top of the Bitcoin network. Yeah. Like, how is that bad? Right? No, that's definitely positive for Bitcoin. Yeah, it seems and like I he's think advancing his, his baby, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, I just thought this was super cool. And super, yeah. and, 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 and apparently it's like an open secret because I think a lot of... So Sam, Sam knows there's a guy named Samson Mew who's a developer for Block, Blockstream and he's a very well-liked guy. So it's like a lot of people that are respected i think no he's satoshi because their signatures are just there but they can't say it why does nobody i didn't even know that like why does nobody know who this guy is why does nobody know who satoshi is yeah i didn't even know he was a mystery i have a question for you do you <laughs> yeah. guys agree that it's good that we don't know who satoshi nakamoto is like there's sort of a thousand towards percent it? thousand yeah. percent i just didn't know that, that nobody knew him yeah. So even Adam Beck try and kidnap him. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's the perfect point, right? Um, Adam Beck even said in an interview because they interviewed him a lot. I'm not saying he's Satoshi, but just because he's one of the big players in the industry. And they're like saying, um, "Do you know who Satoshi is?" And he's like, "No, I don't know." And he's like, "I think it's a great idea that um, Satoshi kept his anonymity because if you build something and you are that the leader, you become almost a cult status. And even if this thing is decentralized and it's open source." If if the, if you ever get to a point where there needs there is disagreement, they would always look to the leader to solve the problem, right? Or whatever the leader does is representative of the whole industry. And he's like, you can't you can't have a figurehead there. If you do, that opens it up to so many attacks. Mm -hmm. And he yeah, said that's that. really why crypto is the currency of the people. Well, that's that's like one of the things. Like, look at Ethereum. You have Vitalik. Anything Ethereum, you you think Vitalik, right? That is a point of failure. He, he, he's such a genius by staying anonymous. So he, so Caitlin, to your question, he, um, he, he, he's, so this is one of the things that's for Adam Beck. He's a, he's a part of the crypt, uh, the cypherpunk movement. Uh, Bitcoin, the white paper was published in a cypherpunk, the, the cypherpunk, uh, email, email list. Right. And so when he sent it, nobody knew who he was, he just took a name and that, that, that list got a lot of developers involved. And throughout the years, there was a Bitcoin forum where they were talking about the, the code and how to implement it and how to upgrade it. And there was several emails back and forth between him and the other developers. But he was really careful never to imply anything specific about himself in terms of his age, education. He was just very straight to the point about the project. So those okay. things I, I mentioned. Sorry. He was still he was still like helping people set up the mining procedure and like walk them through the whole process and everything. He was just doing it all remote. Nobody knew who he was. Well, he was developing with them for two years because once he published the white paper, he, it was like the basically it was the roadmap, but all the little details had to get built. And there's a ton of coding that needed to be done. So a lot of people uh, got involved with it. Hmm. And so 
So, oh, so that was another clue, by the way. Of all, so there was like six core developers that stayed at the beginning that are part of Bitcoin Core, and Satoshi had contacts with all of them. And there's emails and things. Adam Beck doesn't have a single email with back and forth with Satoshi. So he was part of it, but then he never communicated with himself, hmm. right? So there's so a, there's I a know of- that you've done a lot of uh, like reading and research on this. So let me ask you: the idea that Satoshi is not a person, but a group of people or a government, an organization. What do you think about that? Well, before I learned about this, I actually thought Satoshi was a group. I thought it was really unlikely that a single person would possess the coding, the understanding of the financial system, of understanding game theory, just the the, the whole broad and deep understanding of all these areas you needed to build Bitcoin was just, I didn't think one person could possess all that skill. Mm-hmm. But now I kind of do. Um, but yeah, so like, yeah, so like, so, so, so that, so I'm pretty, I'm pretty certain it's this person. Um, and the other, oh, the other thing that's funny is there's a guy that Time Magazine outed um, back like about ten years ago as being Satoshi Nakamoto. His name was Dorian Nakamoto. He's an engineer yeah. that lived in California. <laughs> You've heard about that, right? I, I remember that actually. Yeah. So. He's clearly not, right? He denied it all the way. But what's funny was um, Adam Beck lived in the same neighborhood as Satoshi Nakamoto. And he lived in the same neighborhood as Hal Finney as well. Yeah. Which is interesting. Yeah. So then there's... And I believe Dorian worked at Google. Yeah. So there's some speculation that maybe Adam Beck just met the Dorian Nakamoto and just thought, hey, that's a cool last name. Why don't I take it as a pseudonym? <laughs> well, what does Nakamoto mean in Japanese? I think it's just a name. Like, I remember hearing so- Satoshi meant something, Nakamoto meant something else. Oh, I don't know. I actually didn't know about that. I look that up. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so for a while there, I thought it was Hal Finney, but then, no, Hal Finney is just uh, just, just a really smush, special person, but I, 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 think it's, uh, I think it's Adam Beck. But, um, so Satoshi means wisdom in Japanese. Oh, thanks for pulling out, Sam. Oh, shit. That's actually highly appropriate. <laughs> Does Nakamoto mean anything? What is that? I can't read that on my screen. I can't, I can't get the. Uh, I, but what's is there? Does it have a meaning? Oh, maybe so, you yeah. just thought it was a cool last name. Then maybe that supports you. Yeah, so there it is. Yeah. So that makes perfect sense. My neighbor's Nakamoto. I like wisdom, so we just <laughs> Satoshi Nakamoto. put those two together, and we'll roll with it. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's hilarious. But yeah, my my you guys hope want to is do that... some chart study. Yeah, what do you want to look at? Uh, I want to look at uh, a few things in particular before we finish up. Uh, maybe gold. Oh. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Let, I'm going to pull up uh, XUA right now. You want it on daily? Yeah, XAU on the weekly, and I'd love to know what you guys think. But I saw some uh, pretty uh, big wicks um, on like Wednesday, Thursday on the daily, and on the weekly it formed a really nice, um, a nice weekly wick, and on the RSI a higher low as well. And I know this has been one of the most uh, punished areas of the markets lately. Uh, right. Kind of left out on the dust. Yeah. So let's see. I got it on the weekly. For some reason, the daily looks strange. Like. There's no data points, but the weeklies. 
Oh, you're there. you're looking at gold silver, right? I'm talking about XAUUSD. XAUUSD. Oh, okay. Which one, Onada or Forex? Um, the first one works. All right, I'm going to defer to uh, Kalen on this chart here. Yeah, so I this is already hitting indie. some of your levels, and if you see, um, you know, it's falling on some declining volume as well. And uh, this intermediate decline, it's long in the tooth for sure. It's been declining since, I want to say, July, August. Oh, this one here. Yeah, it looks like uh, there's a lot of volume. Volume spiked during COVID and just started uh, coming down, settling down a little bit. So uh, gold and silver were like the biggest winners of COVID uh, for the first, I want to say, like four or five months. Um, and ever since then, it's just been in correction mode. Yeah, let's see. Gold peaked 41% within uh, six months of COVID. 41%. Yeah, you should have seen some of these gold and silver mining stocks. They absolutely ripped it. And now a lot of them are down like 50% plus from their highs. Add this to the watch list. And what I you know for feeling? sure that. Sorry? What, what, I'm just wondering what you're seeing from the chart. Um, does it look bullish or bearish? I mean, from that, it looks like it's basically right on right on trend break. If you, if you draw an upward trend line all the way along, it looks like it's probably bouncing right off that. Right so there? Probably, no, no, like, I mean, all the way back from, like, 20, I can't read that, like, 2019, maybe? Just that whole upward trend line. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, see, yeah, it is. See, if you go down a little bit, capture that other bottom. The interesting thing is that Bitcoin and crypto has taken all the air out of the precious yep. metal sector. A lot of gold bugs said, hey, I'm not making any money in gold and silver right now. Why don't I play crypto for a little bit, make some money there, and then go back when the dust settles i was just gonna say that the other day i saw an article that said in the last i think it was six months or three months about five billion uh five billion went into bitcoin etfs and, and 20 billion came out of gold hmm. i would believe it yeah i think i think a lot of the younger generation that's what they're doing they're going they're going bitcoin they're not going gold or silver yeah, I mean, like, if you think about it fundamentally, like, it's like, if, if you're just talking about it from a trading perspective, they're both on the same digital platforms now. So, and, and I would argue uh, Bitcoin is easier to get into and easier to manage. So, like, what is the advantage that gold has now? I don't know. I mean, uh, I, I think that gold has been a store of value for, you know, thousands of years. It's funny that civilizations on opposite ends of the world used gold as money, used it as a store of value. Uh, I definitely think that Bitcoin uh, has the tech behind it, and it's definitely a competitor. Uh, I don't think either are currencies. I'm not going to go that far because both are uh, deflationary assets. Uh, but gold and more so silver are uh, used in um, uh, industrial processes. Um, such as uh, silver is used in like healthcare, silver is um, uh, used in solar panels as well. And if you pop up silver XAG USD, I think we have an even more bullish chart. On the weekly, it looks like a bull flag here. It looks like there's going to be some continuation bouncing off. I think that's the 50 week. Yeah, it's the 50 EMA. I, I got to say, I think silver is really holding, nice holding up a lot better than Bitcoin is. Oh, sorry, not Bitcoin, Bitcoin uh, gold is, yeah. Yeah. 
I also think so. I think silver could be a big trade for the year, but I think it's still very early stages. And that's why I wanted to bring it up. It's something to watch. It's very neglected right now. And uh, by nature, I'm a contrarian. So I like to zig when others zag. And I think that uh, some areas of the market are a little crowded and uh, no one wants to talk about gold and silver right now. Would you pick one over the other? I think at this point, I'm probably more partial to silver, but I think both are worth watching. And uh, especially with that rejection of the 50 week, I just, I think that's a great setup. Oh, okay. So here's it on the monthly. That makes it more interesting. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Oh, shit. Look at that. It, uh, it basically did a cup and handle there. There's the cup and there's the handle. Now That's a textbook cup and handle right there. And again, I don't think that we're going to break that $30 level on the first time. Had to hit it once, hit it again a month or two ago, um, and probably are going to have to do it a couple more times. But uh, it actually kind of looks like an ascending triangle as well on the weekly. Yeah, that yeah, looks actually. really good for, for a run to all-time highs there back in, what is that, 2014 it looks like? Yeah, well, okay. it hit $50 a number of times. It hit $50 um, in uh, the 1970s when the Hunt brothers tried to corner the silver market. You can't see it on the chart because it doesn't go back that far. But $50 historically has been a really big level of resistance for silver. So if we could uh, make a run to 50 bucks, I mean, that's a, a great return right there. But if we can, uh, you know... If we can break that, then uh, blue sky breakout. Yeah. What happened in uh, 2013? Why the dump? Uh, I'm guessing that's probably uh, correlated with the U.S. dollar. We saw a lot of U.S. dollar strength. And um, as you know, precious metals um, are inversely correlated uh, to the U.S. dollar. And then uh, we had a little bit of a precious metals bubble after... Um, after the great financial crisis, uh, if you want to pop the chart on gold, or you can just imagine it, um, it had a really, really big run from like 2008, 2009 until 2011. So that was just a cycle top. Oh, I remember looking at this. I remember gold. And that's a cup gold. and handle forming on gold also. Yeah. No, I remember looking at this back here with my friends uh, in the crypto space. And we're saying that gold was, was hitting a cup and handle. One of them actually... Uh, works for a company that sells physical gold and silver, so he was pretty bullish about it. But if you look at what's been happening the last few months, it almost looks like a failed, um, a failed rally. It's just it just seems to be dying. It does. Well, so it's right like it, when we were looking at the weekly chart, that looked pretty heavy to me, like for sure. But like looking at that right there, it's right on support, right? It's right on that support line. So, so. that's gold. Yeah, yeah. that's gold. He, he just had uh, silver up there. But yeah, it looks like it's right on support. And there's that consolidation zone from like 1500 to like 1900, I want to say. Uh, yeah. And it's funny because in 2011, people were stacking gold and silver uh, the way that people are stacking crypto and NFTs right now. People used to go to the bank and go coin roll hunting and try to search for uh, silver coins. Um you know, they're worth like, I want to say like, you know, four to maybe $8 per silver quarter. So people used to do that as a job. Mm. Um, yeah. So it was really um, a hot sector at the time. And uh, I always say though, long consolidations lead to large breakouts. When you look at almost a 10 year consolidation phase, once you do get that breakout, I'm not sure when it's going to happen. It's going to be explosive. Wow. You're right. I, f I forgot about this. 2008, I was working at Brinks and their gold and silver 
vault needed to expand because there was so much transaction. Look at it right at right at the, the, the uh, two thousand eight, the the uh, financial crisis. As soon as the, it did a uh, almost, it did one hundred eighty five percent from there from the next three years. That's exactly, crazy. and then we had to just work that off completely, but. I don't think any chart has a longer consolidation than silver. Silver's been consolidating for the last 50 years. So uh, I would advise people to wait to invest until you have um, confirmation of that breakout. Because uh, right now it's just whipsawing. Wow. In the same period, silver did almost a 500% when gold did just under 200. Yeah, silver will do that. It'll outperform during uh, great periods and it'll underperform during negative periods. That's good to know because uh, I was telling Kaling about this a few weeks ago. I put, I, I bought f some uh, iShares uh, for my mom for silver. I think that's going to be a wise move looking back. Yeah, it's drifted. It's it it. I think about the top though. It drifted down like three percent since then. But I'm long term bullish, so just going to keep it there for a little bit. It's just been whipsawing, and I see you have those uh, two levels, support and resistance. It's just like trading within that band right now. Yeah. Yeah, it looks I'm, like I'm, a pretty good chart though for the long side. It always pays to be patient. What do you think, Caitlin? One of you some some idea for your investments, your investment <laughs> portfolio? Well, patience for me is anything over five minutes. But yeah, <laughs> I, think, I think if I start taking a look at some of these, yeah, no, that does. I love how we have Kalen over here that trades on like what do you trade on the the five minute chart or the one minute Straight chart? Back. So you trade on the three minute. What do you trade on, David? Uh, for my swings, I'm always looking at dailies. Dailies, dailies and weeklies, I'm always yeah. looking at weeklies. So <laughs> it's funny. Everybody's Actually, doing something different here. But it's funny because we're all looking at the exact same pattern. Like when I look at the silver chart yeah. I have up there right now, like if that was a three minute chart, I'd be all over that long. But this is oh, what, yeah. what are we on monthly? That's, it's the exact, like literally the exact same pattern. That's really good to hear because I think that the patterns are the same. They play itself out. Um, it just depends on what time frame that you're looking at. 100%, yeah. So I do appreciate that. What is the volume on here? 600,000 shares? Is this shares? Or what is it? I would rather look at um, uh, something like iShares. I think that would probably be more accurate. Yeah, because that's the one I bought my mom, iShares. The funniest thing was when the Wall Street Bets guys tried to uh, squeeze the silver market uh, about two shorted months ago. It. That, that <laughs> failed. I shorted a bunch of silver stocks that morning. Smart. Oh, did you? Good man. I like yeah, that. That was, that was right after GME went way up, and I knew that they weren't going to be able to do it twice. And silver's a whole, whole other world than a, than a little you know, gaming company or whatever the hell it is. So. Well, the, the banks control the silver market, so they weren't going to let that happen. Not exactly. Yeah, and and I knew that, so I, I I took a bunch of short positions that morning. Actually, yeah, the way, I, I can't remember how much it gapped up, like sixty or seventy percent or something. When that, all I think it went from like twenty four to like thirty bucks. I'm not yeah, sure if you want to pop up that gap up on the hourly, David. Yeah, it was something like that. I remember getting in around like the the mid to high twenties, wrote it down to the low twenties. Uh, yeah, was that, that was it. That little island uh, right up there in February. Oh, see, I had this drawn out before. This was what concerned me. Uh, I I remember thinking about mm -hmm. if it broke out to buy the breakout, but it looks like it re it just kind of like fluttered since then. It, this is not a real breakout. No, it, that, I don't even think. Yeah, it just kind of wicked up to new highs, and it looks like it consolidated just under the breakout level. 
I also yeah, like see like a head and shoulders there, like January uh, left shoulder, February head, March right shoulder type thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, if this was a successful breakout, the target would have been just under 30 bucks. And it looks like it failed halfway. January yeah, 8th. I, I think it's going to take a couple of tests of that $30 range, but I think eventually it is going to go higher and it's going to be a place you're going to want to be. Interesting. I remember I remember um, when the Wall Street bets thing was happening, I was talking to that same friend that their company that sells physical gold and silver, because I wanted to buy, I, if I was going to buy silver, I, I would have bought physical. And mm -hmm. so I was talking to him and he said, um, it's they, they, they're they having trouble sourcing physical gold uh, silver right now. And if you're going to buy it, spot price is 25% above Oh, sorry. Physical price is twenty five percent above spot price. Oh, I wow. think that twenty five percent is great because I can't find anywhere lower than thirty or forty percent. It's ridiculous. I mean, how do you make a return on that? Silver has to go up fifty percent for you to make any money on that. Yeah, that's unless you're just doing it as like a just a habit kind of thing, not as an investment. Yeah, like if you want to buy some because it's shiny and you like to look at yeah. it, that's one thing. But how are you ever going to sell it too? So yeah, is, if you were to ever go to a <laughs> local point shop and try to sell it, they're not going to buy it from you for the 30% premium. They're going to be giving you yeah. like a 30% discount. Yeah, for sure. So although a lot of um, gold or silver bugs like to have it, you know, sort of physically so they can hold on to it. I think that uh, buying the buying the digital version, buying the iShares or um, buying the ETF is probably the way to go. Yeah, that's that's well. The thing, the, the reason I was looking for physical silver wasn't so much to sell it. It was going to be part of my doomsday kit. Like, <laughs> I, I'm not going to buy gold coins for doomsday. Like, why the f like that just doesn't make sense. But if you have silver, you could use. You know, you got guns, you got bullets, you got silver. Like, you're good. <laughs> you should buy some silver bullets, or you should melt. Yeah. <laughs> the werewolves. Be really cool. David's going to be the guy to go to. Werewolves, I know. I'll take care of the zombies and the werewolves. <laughs> My, yeah. I remember, remember, Kaylin, I was talking to you around that period. I remember I was like, I have guns, I have Bitcoin, and if I get silver, I'm pretty much good <laughs> for yeah. any scenario. <laughs> yeah, I'll, come, I'll come stay with you if that ever happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Plenty of guns. You're welcome too, Brad. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. We got to go shooting again soon. <laughs> yeah, a bunch oh, of stock traders to survive the apocalypse. That's great. <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny and ironic, but I, I'd, I'd love for that, that scenario to happen. But... I don't know. Going back to what we were saying at the beginning, just to wrap it up. So your outlook, your your outlook is really bullish, right, for the market, Brandon? Yeah. Well, when I look at uh, secular bull markets, you know, they typically span uh, every thirty years. Like I was saying, the nineteen twenties, the nineteen fifties, and sixties, and the nineteen nineties. Um, I think that we're probably right in the middle of this secular bull market, um, and I think that definitely you want to be more growth oriented. Uh, but I think when it comes to tech, we're just scratching the surface. So I think you stay invested. You stay invested for the long term. You invest in companies that are innovating, companies that are growing revenues and growing earnings, and you stay the course. So are you concerned we're going to have another bond tantrum? Um, I don't think so. I think that the Fed is supporting the bond market so much with all of the asset purchases um, I think that inflation, while it's increasing, it's still benign. Um, I think that uh, we already did have a little bit of a scare and people were shifting towards value. Uh, I just think that it's transient.
So, because like Biden just announced that uh, he's proposing a two billion dollar infrastructure plan, which is great for EVs, because a lot of I think he's meeting with uh, uh, automotive companies at the end of this month and semiconductor CEOs. So that's great for for our growth stocks, but like it's great for a lot of the companies that we invest in, right? And I think that's just more stimulation and that's more uh, sort of confidence in the markets. Uh, I think that it is just all positive. And I'm not going to fight Jerome Powell. I'm not going to fight the Federal Reserve. Um, I'm just going to I'm just going to stick with it. So do you think? And I think that. um, Yep. No, go go ahead. I think that inflation is a long process. I think we need to look at inflation. We need to look at rates and we need to look at yields. But I think inflation is a long process. I was just going to ask because we had that tantrum right around the time of the what the 1.9 trillion stimulus. I'm just wondering if this another two, we're going to have a little mini tantrum again when they announce that one. Well, it, well, if you want to look at the real tantrum, uh, the taper tantrum, that was in I believe 2013. And if you invested during that time, uh, although the market was a little bit of volatile for a few months, then that was a great opportunity to buy stocks. I mean, if you bought stocks in 2013. Um, that was when the S&P 500 broke out of a 15-year basing pattern. And uh, since then, the S&P is up like, what, 250%? So I think when uh, people get spooked and the markets sell off and you're in correction mode, that's when you got to buy the market. I'm just asking because last week I was talking to Kaylin, and I talked to you about it too, like my whole being massively in cash kind of strategy. I'm just thinking like if we're going to have another tantrum, that might be I might be smart to be more in cash around that time just to you know snap up some stuff on a on a good price. Yeah, I mean it sounds like a good idea in theory, but to actually you know call the tops and to pick the bottoms, it's just you have to be very tactical in doing so, and it definitely can work. Um, but I would just I would just rather stay the course, and if I can you know again buy my favorite companies when they're cheap, I'll do that too. But I don't mind, uh, you know, riding out the consolidation, just like we did in March. March was not a great month for equities, um, but we're entering April. It's a great, um, it's a great seasonal period, and uh, I think we just gotta let our uh, our stocks ride. Because Caitlin, you saw some tantrums. Like you saw, your trades weren't really working out during that period when we had the bond stuff happening, right? Yeah, like probably like i don't know i would say like halfway through january to halfway through march this year it was things were a lot trickier like a lot of stuff was just feeling really heavy because like i like i i short bias mostly so i like stocks to spike up so i can okay. short them and that just really wasn't happening so, yeah, I, was, sorry go on so i think that's so i i i think that's like what kind of stocks are you trading like like what sectors were they high growth sectors anything like literally anything i'm just looking like all small caps like any kind of news article any kind of you know, bogus PR or anything like that. But, but like, you know, it's like I said, it's not really related to the broader market, but I I've seen in talking to David that when, when guys aren't blowing my stuff through the roof, like when, you know, long traders aren't just buying everything, buying everything like crazy. That's when I kind of start to see the overall markets are just going a little bit sideways or start to feel a little bit heavier. I think that's just a sentiment overall. So, so what I can say to that is I want to say like late January to like probably last week, that was just counter trend. Okay. That was completely just counter trend. And I think that it was a little bit of a difficult period because we had a lot of these counter trends. We had a lot of the losers had some of their best months in a long time in January, February, March. And a lot of the winners, uh, they were in consolidation mode. Okay. And uh, I think that should continue. I can't talk too much to the small caps, but I can tell you with the growth stocks and the technology stocks, I am expecting 
uh, really nice spring, a really nice summer. Um, and I, I, I don't want to uh, play the bounces in these companies that have deteriorating fundamentals, the ones that had a short-term bounce. I'm not in the game of playing the reversion to the mean. I would rather just stick to uh, the winners and actually buy the counter trend bounce, do the opposite of what everyone else is doing there. And uh, I think uh, we'll all see some success doing that. Yeah, definitely. You, you know, you've seen my post. I was buying the dips. Every time Tesla dipped below like 650, I'm like, ah, oh, grab some, grab some. Like, you've been a Tesla bull for a long time, haven't you? I've been a Tesla bull for since 2012. That's amazing. It's it's I bought it. I bought my first share at twenty five bucks. Split, <laughs> be five dollars today or five dollar buying buying price like base price today. Like Crazy. that's how much of a pull. But like you're right. Like for the the, the 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 a lot of the major losers from last year were winners during that time. And I'm like Volkswagen, Ford, GM. Like their stocks were just doing like 40 percent up during that period. I'm like, your car sales are not improving. Like what changed? Well, that's the thing. So we were talking about uh, epicenter stocks, and those really are the stocks that have uh, outperformed are, um, over the last, I want to say, like one to two months. And these companies are still cascading losses, and their businesses have been fundamentally changed by the pandemic. So when I'm investing for the long term, I want to invest in something that I know is going to work, You know, whether it's the oil and gas companies or the airlines or some of the you know leisure stocks. Uh, to me, I don't have a lot of confidence. I don't really know what the reopening is going to look like when I can invest in something like renewable energy or uh, EVs or e-commerce or AI that's changing the world. There's a long-term long-term tailwinds there and that's going to continue whether, you know, the reopening takes a little bit longer, whether there's a little bit of, you know, sluggish, you know, uh, maybe GDP numbers. I don't know what's going to happen, but I know these companies will still perform well. Yeah, I think Kaylin, did your dad end up buying the uh, Tesla stocks? No, he chickened out because it was too volatile. Oh, <laughs> and then it bounced like eighty bucks in two days. Oh yeah, man, I gave him a little bit of grief for that one. <laughs> man, that's that's a little painful because yeah, like like what Brandon was saying, like so Tesla's Q Q one numbers came out on Friday, and they were like. Maybe they, I think their deliveries were actually ahead of what they were. No, there was just a few thousand short of what they did in Q4. And Q1 is typically their weakest quarter. So in yeah. their weakest quarter, they, they almost matched their strongest quarter. Like that's how fast this company is growing. So the fact that the stock is now trading at like a $20 or $250 discount from where it was three months ago, that's why I was buying it up. I'm like, this is the deal of the century. Right. Exactly. And that's what investing for the long term is all about. It's about yeah. having a long term time horizon, long term view, buying the dips, investing for the long term, and really weathering the difficult periods. Yeah, the only, and I the don't only... think the market's really going to compare or uh, really going to care about Tesla's numbers. I think it really just has to do with sentiment. If the market wants to buy Tesla, the market wants to be in growth stocks, the market wants to be in growth mode, then these um these tech names are going to go up and also yeah. what did you think about the neo and the x-bang numbers because i believe they came out a couple days ago as well uh x-bang i was super worried about because they had a super weak uh in february like they're 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 supposed to do something like four to four thousand uh sales in february they ended up doing like two thousand which scared the crap out of me but they ended up making it up in uh march so they're still like 400 plus percent year over year in sales 
And uh, so they're good. I, I know why Neil's trading at a more of a discount than Xpeng, though. Neil's business, Neil's business model is just fundamentally flawed. You, you're not going to build battery swap stations and think that's going to like be successful. Like, would you, it's, would they going to be like an ESO? You're just going to have like a battery swap station like every street corner? <laughs> like, that, that doesn't make sense to me. How much capex do you need to do something like that? Right? Yeah. <clears throat> we sh- right. we should do one segment just on. EVs and re- renewable energies. Let's let's do that one mid Mar- mid May when the earnings comes out because I want to laugh at the traditional automakers <laughs> while we, <laughs> while we do that. I want I want to do a little trolling there. Yeah, David needs yeah. to make fun of someone in every episode, so we, we line everything up around that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, perfect. Because yeah. I'm like honestly, you have freaking Ford with 233 billion dollars in debt, like actual debt right now and they've held that debt for like a decade and it hasn't been going down and you're going to tell me that tesla's overvalued compared to ford i'm like can people do math they're well, negative up like 300 percent since the march lows it's trading at its highest level since like i want to say 2017 i think people like losing money or they just i almost want to short ford now don't oh. do that <laughs> i know <laughs> I there know, is a little bit of a bubble in the automakers right now. It's like people aren't really discriminating the uh, traditional automakers from the more uh, new economy ones. Yeah. Are you noticing that? Yeah. You know what? Just to, I want to put this up before we wrap it up. But I, so I posted Perfect. about this the other day and I was talking about Volkswagen and their stock is up significantly, especially in the last two weeks um, because Herbert Dees is going Volkswagen. on this whole Volkswagen. Volkswagen yeah. Yeah. Volkswagen. Oh, so yeah. so oh, oh so here's a funny thing. So apparently that was an April Fool's joke. No, well no, see, they claim, no no this is so this is my speculation, right? They claim now that it's an April Fool's joke, but they launched it so far ahead of April Fool's that I think they've I got so that. much shit for it that they had to like kind of recover and say, Oh, by the way, we're just joking. <laughs> <laughs> like they're just walking it back now. It's clearly not an April Fool's joke. They just like got so much shit for it. Yeah, and that's another name that's up over three hundred percent from the March lows as well. Right, and that's exactly the point that I was trying to make: is that the CEO Herbert Dees has no intention of turning them into the next Tesla. He's going on a marketing rampage to increase share value. That's all he's doing. Every everything he's doing, he's gloating about it, and that's just so short sighted. That's exactly what it is, right? So the guys buying in on the stock right now are just going to like just blow up because they have nothing. Right. If you look at any well, announcements they make, yeah. If you look at any announcements they make, it's like we're gonna be an EV leader in 2033. We're gonna do ba- all these batteries. We're gonna have all this battery production six years from now. Like everything's like so far ahead, right? But there's so many EV companies and there's so many traditional auto companies that are trying to go electric. That how many leaders can there be? Are we gonna see some consolidation in the sector? Are we gonna see some bankruptcies? Are we gonna see some new companies join the market? A lot of you questions know, to be there's answered. There's a lot of questions. Um, I, I just want to add one funny thing. A few months ago, Elon was being asked in an interview. He said, um, would you be willing to merge or buy an automaker? And his, his answer was interesting. He said, I'm open. That's all he said. He said, I'm open. Hmm. So I think he might absorb somebody. At this point, they have the cash. Really? Why don't you wrap it up there, yes, sir? Yeah, that's it, guys. Thank you, Brandon, for coming on. Yeah. All right. Thank you for having me, guys. It was a lot of fun. I hope to do it again soon.